Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Dennis, one of the pastors here at Garden City. And I think first, this frequently stands out to me as we go through our time of musical worship. But I'm always amazed at how good Eliana Lee is at the trumpet. Always amazed. It's not often that I hit these moments. Like, it's, I, I wouldn't imagine it's often with um, her dad, Brian, who plays the piano and who is the music director at Alderdice High School. But there are moments for me where I just kind of want to be like, Brian, please stop playing so I can just listen to your daughter. <laughs> this week we are continuing in our series on the book of Acts, our study on the book of Acts. We're going to be working our way through a passage in Acts chapter 4 that honestly was a bit more challenging than I was anticipating it being in terms of really pulling together a conversation for this morning. We'll explain that more as we get there. In 1892, Absalom and Carolyn Seidenstricker, who were Presbyterian missionaries stationed in China, were home in West Virginia on a furlough. Carolyn gave birth while they were home on furlough to their fourth child, a daughter they named Pearl. Pearl lived almost exclusively in China until she was about 40 years old. The only significant time that she spent outside of China prior to turning 40 was a four-year period where she went to college at Randolph-Macon College in Lynchburg, Virginia. Throughout her life, she experienced significant heartache. Four of her siblings died when they were children, and Carolyn's first, or Pearl's first child, Carol, was born with significant physical challenges. But in her late 20s and early 30s, Pearl began publishing stories and essays in magazines like The Nation, and one that you may have heard of that still exists today, The Atlantic. In 1930, she published her first novel, East Wind, West Wind, and then in 1931, she published a book titled The Good Earth. It was a book so good that it was the number one selling fiction book in America for 1931 and 1932. It's the book that would ultimately be responsible for winning Pearl the Pulitzer Prize and the Nobel Prize for Literature. In 1934, Pearl and her husband moved from China to Doylestown, Pennsylvania, where they spent the rest of their lives. Doylestown is about an hour north of Philadelphia. And the entire time that Pearl was living in the United States, she was deeply engaged in both the civil rights and women's rights movements. She was a trustee at Howard University, and she started Welcome House, which was America's first adoption agency focused on international and interracial adoption. 
Her organization was responsible for placing over 5,000 children who had been, up until that point, considered unadoptable simply because of their racial status into families. She was a fierce advocate who spent her life fighting for vulnerable and marginalized people. And in her book, The Good Earth, she gave expression to what she believed was our culture's need to care well for vulnerable people. She wrote, the test of a civilization is the way that it cares for its most vulnerable members. I wonder, what if we changed one word in that quote, and it read, the test of a church is the way that it cares for its most vulnerable members? If we just change one word in that quote, and it reads, the test of a church is the way that it cares for its most vulnerable members. Now, I wonder if some of us might be thinking, isn't the test of a church the way it proclaims the gospel? Isn't the test of a church the way that it talks about Jesus? But what if proclaiming the gospel and caring for vulnerable people are two sides to the same coin? What if the way a church cares for its vulnerable members is validation of its gospel proclamation. This week, we're continuing to work our way through the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. This is what Luke writes there. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need." Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, I think we have to start our conversation about this passage by first taking time to identify the kind of passage it is. This is now the second time in the book of Acts that Luke includes what is known as a summary passage. The last summary passage was in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and the content was honestly very similar to the content in this passage. Summary passages are meant to be descriptive passages. That might seem like a really small detail, but it's an important detail for the conversation I think we're supposed to have this morning. Luke intends this passage to be a descriptive passage, not a prescriptive passage. We're not intended, Luke does not intend for his 
original audience, for anyone who would ever read this piece of writing. He does not intend for this passage and the people who read it to work to figure out how to apply it to their lives or our lives in a prescriptive manner. Luke's intent in this passage is not to convince every Christian who would ever read his writing to immediately sell all of their possessions. And then, I don't honestly know, bring all of the possessions with you to church on a Sunday morning and lay them at Pastor Shack's in my feet. Luke is describing the activities of the early church at this stage in the church's development. And we're invited to read the passage, reflect on it, and then do the work of identifying the ethics and values that are informing the early church's shared life and see what those ethics and values might have to say to us today. Now, just to sit here for a moment, there might be some of us sitting in this room who what I just talked about, this being a descriptive passage instead of a prescriptive passage, that might feel uncomfortable. A lot of us have been taught to just read the Bible at face value, to just read the words that are on the page, to receive them literally, and then try to just apply them prescriptively. It's a fundamentalist way of reading Scripture. What happens, though, when we take that approach is that we oftentimes find ourselves establishing an inconsistent theology. Because if we just look at Jesus' teachings throughout the gospel, there's no consistent approach about money. He talks about it a lot. He makes it very clear that if we're not critical about resource and money, it will take our hearts captive. He invites everybody who follows him to do whatever they need to do to posture themselves before Jesus is completely dependent on him for all of their spiritual, physical, and financial needs. But if we just look at the Gospels, we see him, yes, with a rich young ruler, look at that rich young ruler and say, go and sell all of your possessions and then come and follow me. But then we also see him with Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, who was wealthy because he had defrauded all of these people. And Jesus never actually tells Zacchaeus to do anything with all of his ill-gotten gain. Zacchaeus actually comes to this point of faith in Jesus and then recognizes on his own, I'm going to give fourfold what I stole back to the people. And yet, that still would leave Zacchaeus pretty darn wealthy. And so, there's not necessarily a consistent, prescriptive way for us to approach how we're supposed to handle financial resource. And because of that, I want to have this conversation this morning. I want to work through this passage and look at the values and ethics that we very clearly see at play in the life of the early church. And I want to pay attention to the way that the early church sees and cares for its vulnerable members by practicing a sacrificial kind of generosity. So, in these six verses, Luke clearly identifies the reality that there were no needy persons among them. He names this specifically, that in this nascent early church, there are no needy persons among them. 
And Luke names that as evidence of the ways that God's grace was powerfully at work in the early church. And then Luke identifies one of the primary ways that the needs of people were met. The members in the community who had extra used that extra to meet the needs of the needy. People sold land. People sold houses. And then they brought the proceeds to the apostles who then distributed the proceeds to the people in the community who were in need. And just to say this now, one of the reasons this is not to be read as a prescriptive passage is because there's actually, as we'll discover in a few chapters, issues with this model. There's going to come a moment in a few chapters where a group of early Christians come to the apostles and say, our needs are being overlooked. You're actually not meeting our needs. And so this idea of just bringing all the proceeds and laying them at the apostles' feet, it's eventually going to cause some problems. But the idea of sacrificial generosity and no one being needy in the community are values and ethics we need to pay attention to. Luke ends the passage by sharing a brief story about a man named Barnabas. Can't think of a moment in Acts yet where there hasn't been more of a teacher's pet than Barnabas. Like, how do you end this whole passage and then all of a sudden it's like, hey guys, this is what the ethics and values of the early church are, and then let me tell you about my boy Barnabas. He did it better than everybody else. Barnabas sold a field that he owned. He brought all of the proceeds from that sale to the apostles. And then the apostles distributed it to those who had needs. Two things I want us to make sure that we're paying attention to before we continue in our conversation. One, the early church demonstrates that caring for the vulnerable people in their community is central to their mission. Meeting the needs of their vulnerable members is not a peripheral or secondary activity for the early church. And, two, the people with extra realize they're supposed to use it to meet the needs of the vulnerable people in their community. There's no hint of the well-resourced people telling the under-resourced people to just make better choices before they can get help. There's no hint of the well-resourced people creating work requirements in order for the under-resourced people to receive care or support. The only thing Luke makes clear is that when people come to faith in Jesus, he changed their hearts so profoundly that they chose to use their extra to meet the needs of the vulnerable. It seems the church is intended to be a community where there are people who have extra and people who have need together as sisters and brothers 
equally known, valued, and loved by God. It seems that the gospel is supposed to work itself into our lives in such a way that those with extra joyfully use it to meet the needs of their vulnerable sisters and brothers. Even if that means living our lives in a way where we deny ourselves some of the things that we want so that we can have extra to meet the needs of the people who have needs. This is a passage that challenges the idea that generosity is a peripheral or secondary activity of the church. It seems to advocate for the reality that generosity is at the core of a church's gospel proclamation because what if the test of a church really is the way that it cares for its most vulnerable members? What if generosity and proclaiming the gospel really are two sides to the same coin? What if the way the church cares for its most vulnerable members is really a validation of its gospel proclamations? All throughout the gospels, we're met with this reality. Jesus is all we need. We're supposed to live lives of complete and total dependence on him. We're supposed to rely on him alone for our spiritual and physical needs. When Jesus moves into our lives, he quickly dispels the notion that we're self-sufficient creatures meant to secure our own lives with our own hands. We're invited to trust Jesus with all of our spiritual and financial and material needs. We're encouraged to reject the belief that the way we find security is by building bigger storehouses for ourselves. To say that a little bit more directly, we're encouraged to reject the belief that we find security by building bigger bank accounts, bigger retirement accounts, or bigger investment portfolios. When we choose to follow Jesus, we're invited to embrace the truth that our security is rooted in Him alone. For those in the community here, for those of us who find ourselves in the room who have extra, I'd like to remind us of the story of the Israelites as they walked out of Egypt. The Egyptians handed over to the Israelites all of their gold and silver, Moses tells us. God orchestrated this moment of incredible redistribution of financial wealth from the Egyptians to the Israelites, but not so the Israelites would be able to move out into the desert and place their hope and security in this newfound wealth. God gave them resource so that over time, as he built them into a people and a nation, they would be able to use that resource to be a blessing to the nations around them. I think the same is true for us. 
If we have been blessed with extra, we've been blessed so we can meet the needs of people in our community, their financial needs and their material needs, in addition to their spiritual needs. We need to be a people in a church that cares for our vulnerable members by practicing sacrificial generosity. We need to be a people in a church that cares for the people in our community who have needs by practicing sacrificial generosity. I believe people will know that we individually and communally trust the gospel, at least in part, by how generous we're willing to be to meet the needs of the people in our community. In the Jewish faith tradition, there are writings known as a midrash. A midrash is basically a Jewish commentary on an Old Testament text. There's one midrash that's known as the Sipra, and in it there's a section that talks about a passage in Deuteronomy, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 15 verses 7 through 11. I'm not going to read those verses right now. You should absolutely go and read them on your own or maybe in a few moments, not right now, but in a few moments just start tuning me out and then go look at it and read it. Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11. But according to the Sipra and its commentary on Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11, failure to help a person in need is tantamount to throwing off the ways of heaven. The Jewish faith tradition interpreted Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11 in such a way that Failure to care for a person in need would be tantamount to one of us throwing off our salvation. So what does all of this mean for us? What are we supposed to do? Two things, I think. We're supposed to care for the vulnerable people in our community. We're supposed to see, move towards, and meet the needs of people in our church. It is really as simple as that. And two, we're supposed to be generous with our financial and material resources. This is what we see the early church practicing. In the early church, there are vulnerable people with real needs And these peoples are seen, and their needs are met. And their needs are met not because of a government program. They're met because people whose lives have been changed by the gospel are selling their extra possessions and their extra houses and their extra land. So that's a lot. Which is why I want to end by sharing a little bit about our church. And then I'd like to extend an invitation. One of Garden City's core values is generosity. 
This is how we describe that value on our website. It says, Jesus saw and addressed the spiritual and physical needs of people. We believe the church is to do the same today. Our financial model is simple and streamlined so that our resources can be allocated to meeting our and our neighbors' spiritual and physical needs. Pastor Shaq and I have talked about how we might need to do, and we probably do need to do a better job sharing some of these stories. But in the 18 months, the roughly 18 months since we started gathering together for public worship services, it was October of 2021 is when we started meeting for worship services. In the roughly 18 months since, we've sought to live into this value. We've sought to embody what we see the early church doing. And so far, in roughly 18 months, as a church, we've given away $75,000 to meet the needs of people in our church and in our community. Last year, we gave 18% of the total monies donated to Garden City back to people in our community and in our church who had need. Last year, we helped over 100. Tyler, thank you for the silent clap back there. That was very good. Um, yeah, that wasn't also, an, you don't have to clap. Definitely does make me wonder, though, what I would have to say to get you to clap. Was there like a different number you were waiting for? Last year, we helped over 100 students at Allegheny Traditional Academy by supporting their spring musical performance of Peter Pan. Last summer, we supported the Brighton Heights Citizens Federation because we love their vision during the summer. They have this vision of building a stronger neighborhood by hosting porch parties where neighbors gather on people's porches to just have a party and get to know each other. And we think Jesus loved parties. And the Brighton Heights Citizens Federation, they lost funding for that program. And so we stepped in to meet that funding shortfall so that they could still do that. We did that in partnership with some friends at Rich Barn Roasters. Um, they actually, that's the coffee that you drink as well, it's Rich Barn in case you didn't know that. Um, we helped multiple families with rent and groceries. Families who would not have been able to meet rent or pay for groceries. And our biggest project last year was coming around um, some neighbors of ours Julian and Tiffany, they had a significant hole in their roof, and they needed help getting a new roof put on their house so that they could stay in it. A couple in our community saw this need and made a significant financial gift, and then we as a church came around that financial gift and added on to it, and Julian and Tiffany now have a new roof and new siding on their house and they'll be able to remain in that house now for years to come. This year, we supported Allegheny Traditional Academy's performance of The Wizard of Oz. This year, 120-some students involved in that program. We're supporting the Brighton Heights Citizens Federation again. Like I said, we think Jesus loved parties and we like it when our neighbors get together. 
We're going to, uh, later this summer, we're going to partner with our friends at Legacy International Worship Center and throw a giant block party for the entire north side. And we're undertaking our biggest single project yet right now. Our friend, Miss Karen. Her story has moved me over time. The ways that throughout her life she has used what she has had to meet the needs of the people in her own life. The way that you have given your house and shared it and invited family in. And the ways that you have used all of your resource and your home to meet the needs and to care for so many people in your life and in your community. Karen needs a new roof. She needs the front porch on her house to be completely rebuilt. And it's a gift that Karen is a part of this community. It is a gift to us. And it's important to us to see Karen, to be able to move towards her and meet this need after watching her for years meet the needs of others. And we're able to do that because of the ways that folks here at Garden City have given so generously. In a few weeks, the project will start, and Miss Karen will have a new roof and a brand new porch. I'll share this too, because I think there are different ways in which we meet needs. So many of you know that last fall, I ended up taking the last two and a half months of the year off to seek counseling, to work through some deep trauma and wounds that have existed in my own life. And I was able to do that. It was a season where I had significant need. And we were able to take that time because of the ways that you have supported the church and you have made that possible. It's been a long journey for me. Yesterday, I was sitting at a co-working space working on this sermon. When we talked on the phone yesterday, I said this would just be our little secret, but now it's everybody's secret. I finished this at about 6 o'clock last night, just so you know. I had this moment, though, while I was writing. And I suppose the context for this is that one of the things that I am working through in my counseling is, for whatever reason, this foundational belief that every relationship is fragile, and at my core, I'm unlovable. And yesterday, I was listening to some music, and I was writing, and I had this moment where I had this image of walking into a coffee shop and seeing a person sitting at the back of the coffee shop and writing in a journal. And I recognized the person. And so in this kind of dream or vision or just thought scene playing in my mind, I went and sat down at that table with the person. And the person looked up at me, and it was Jesus. And he just looked at me and said, oh, I love you. And I just wept. 
It's a need that I have had. And it's being met through your care and provision and generosity. When you give money to Garden City, it is not so we can buy nicer production equipment. You will never see a fog machine. <laughs> I'd also like to just point out the irony that a fog machine got a round of applause, but $75,000 did not. It's cool, guys. Pastor Shaq and I have worked really hard to build a streamlined financial model where as little of the resource that's given to Garden City goes to meeting our basic needs as a church. And we've done that, and we've sought that, and we've maintained that because we want to be a church that gives as much as we possibly can to the people in need in our church and in our community. And there's more for us to do, church. There's more for us to do. There's more for us to step into. The need around us and in our own community here is great. And I believe one of the reasons we're here is to be a hope and a light for our friends and our neighbors who haven't been seen, who haven't had people move towards them, and who haven't been well cared for. This is an invitation and just to preface, it's an invitation I'm a little uncomfortable giving, and yet I feel like it's important. If you're not yet giving to Garden City, will you prayerfully consider starting? Will you prayerfully consider supporting our mission and ministry in the neighborhood? And really, this is an invitation for all of us. If you're already giving, would you prayerfully reflect on what you're giving and see if God might be inviting you into something more? And just to say this, this is not so we can pay our staff more. Pastor Shaq and I are rolling in money. <laughs> it is not true, just for the record. <laughs> it's not so we can pay our staff more. We're, we've already built our budget for the year. What you give right now covers our basic financial needs. The reason I extend this invitation is because we believe there's more for us to step into. We believe there's more for us to do as a church. We want to be even more generous. We want to be able to meet even more needs. Because what if the test of a church really is the way that it cares for its most vulnerable members? This is also not in the sermon, but I'm going to say it, and I'm sorry that it's 11.15. I'll be quick. Um, I've seen something happen in churches before that I want to kind of name and then, like, talk about. I've seen churches before respond to need around them that's great and make the decision to not enter into it 
with the rationale that, well, if we meet that need, then everyone's going to expect us to meet their need. And we don't think we're capable of meeting everyone's need. So let's not meet this one that's in front of us right now that we could. Because if we do that, what if six months from now there's another one and we just can't? So let's just not. I think that's an incredibly wrong posture. I'm really curious to test the theory that God's people are capable of meeting the needs of the people in the church. We're going to keep meeting the needs until we have no money left. And then honestly, I'm starting to believe that there's just going to be more. And then we'll meet more needs until there isn't any left. And then there'll be more. I believe that's the invitation for us, to meet the needs that are in front of us with the resource that we have and then trust Jesus to keep providing. Let's be a church that practices sacrificial generosity. Let's meet the needs of our vulnerable members today and for years to come. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this moment that we could be together in this moment. Thank you for this passage in Acts and the opportunity for us to read it and talk through it and wrestle with it. To recognize that our interpretations are not perfect and yet we want to have real conversations about what your word means for us. How are we supposed to live in light of your words? Would you teach us to be sacrificially generous? Would we be a community marked by justice? Father, we love you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.